Hey everybody, my name is Divi. I'm the CEO of Paladin. We deploy autonomous drones to 911 calls, and we're excited to talk about DFR and the first ever Class Bravo BDLOS wave. Hi everyone, my name is Luis Figueredo. You might know me as a drone detective. Um, I fly drones in public safety, and we're gonna be talking about DFR. Hi everyone, I'm Greg from Pilot Institute. We train drone pilots all over the country. Hi, my name is Haya from Drone Excel, where we cover all the drone news on our website. Welcome to the latest episode of the Pixel Drone Show, our weekly podcast where we talk to industry professionals about what they do in the UAS space. From professionals who use drone to fly inspection missions to public safety users, or even drone light shows, you will learn on the Pixel Drone Show that drones are much more than just toys. Hey, hey, what's up, Pyo? Hey, how are you, man? Good, good. Long time no see. <laughs> yeah, right. What's going on this week? What do we have? Uh, I just I just finished uh, an event with the FAA, a live event. It's been back to back to back, basically. I feel like a movie star moving from one, <laughs> one set to the next to the next. This is my third event, and it's not even noon yet. <laughs> it's not even there 11. There you go. <laughs> now, if you, if you only got paid the movie star big bucks, then we, uh, we'd all be happy, right? <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish. I'm going to start signing autographs pretty soon. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, what's up? What's up in your life? Um, getting ready for the summer, planning some travel, but otherwise uh, quiet and uh, keeping up with drone news. And as always, there's always new stuff going on, right? I mean, uh, at the time that we record this, we have the FEA uh, Drone Safety Day coming up. I mean, that's a big deal. Yep. And I think that's uh, something you might be able to tell us more about as well. Yeah, yeah, that actually is happening tomorrow, so it will be done by the time this goes live. But, you know, yeah. FA Safety Day is cool. It's a cool concept. It's kind of like a focus. Ooh, I'm getting uh, I'm getting a croissant delivered here. Oh my god, <laughs> by drone. I know this is this is this is royal service here. Croissants by uh, drone. Here we go. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Drone Safety Awareness Day is, well, it used to be Drone Safety Awareness Week. They changed Week, it to yeah. Drone Safety Day to one day, which I think is better. Better. I think it kind of yeah. uh, makes a, a bit more centric, uh, but it's the day that we try to bring awareness to people that may not be aware of what drones do and, and, and doing it right. So they have the flight right is their uh, motto this week and, uh, and the right uh, means something. So you have to register your drone and do a bunch of other things together. So uh, yeah, that's uh, I think it's, it's important for people to become aware of what is going on in the um, yeah. in the drone world especially for people that just got their drone you know a couple of weeks ago a couple of months ago and they're they may not be aware of what needs to get done so yeah. i think it's pretty cool i totally agree well we can definitely talk more about that i see that we have our guests coming in so let's get started with the show i guess right yeah, that sounds good. So today, actually, we're we're talking to Divi, and you've, we, we've seen Divi before because uh, we talked about Paladin Drone, and, and we said we were going to do a follow-up eventually on uh, yeah. the uh, the Drone as First Responders uh, program that they've been working on, and, and they reached out a couple of weeks ago and said that they had some news, so we're bringing them on this week. Uh, we're going to also be talking to Louis. Uh, he's, a, he's a DFR operator, and he's going to join us pretty soon, so uh, let's uh, let's bring them on the show. Awesome. All right. Well, guys, welcome to the show. It's uh, good to see Divi again. And uh, Louis, it's been a while. We saw each other in Texas. Uh, welcome to the show as well. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for having us. It's, uh, I, I think uh, it's always an honor to be invited back. It means we didn't do something too bad the first time. 
<laughs> no, right. you're, you're part right. of a very uh, exclusive group, the people that have made uh, a second appearance on the Pixel Drone Show. So you're very welcome. <laughs> great. Can, can we get badges? Like I, that, that would be great. Patches for that. Yeah, yeah. we'll give you a punch card. Yeah, we'll give you a punch card. You get a free croissant after five. <laughs> I love there it. you go. <laughs> Delivered by so, drone. So, uh, Divi, let's uh, let's recap kind of what we talked about in the last one for those of uh, our followers that, that maybe haven't seen the episode. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you do at Paladin and, uh, and kind of uh, tell us about what DFR is because this is what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. Um, let me go into Paladin. So... Uh, my name is Divi. I'm the CEO uh, and founder of Paladin. And Paladin deploys autonomous drones to 911 calls. Our goal is to give first responders, such as firefighters, police officers, EMS, anyone who's calling us to help people, get them a live overhead view of an emergency before they arrive on scene. We've seen that this can help increase situational awareness. It can help decrease response times and it can help save lives. DFR, I, Lewis, uh, Lewis is a DFR operator, so might be better to hear it directly from him, um, what that means for, for you and what that means for agencies. Yeah, absolutely. Lewis, tell us a little bit more about your background and, and what, uh, what DFR is and what it does really for you. All right, I just wanna make a correction to what Divi said previously. Um, it's police first, then firefighters. Um, he tends to say firefighters first, police, but police first and firefighters. Uh, so um, a little bit about my background. Um, I've uh, been in law enforcement for um, about 19 years um, and uh, started a drone program at my department in about 2017. Um, there was nothing much going on on the East Coast as far as uh, UAS programs. Everything was either in Texas or out West. So. I convinced, uh, you know, the higher ups here to start the program. We rolled it out. It was kind of small for the first few years and then, um, and then it started growing. So, um, we have a pretty, pretty, uh, big program now that we operate. And, um, and then I started looking into the, the whole drone as a first responder, um, component to, to having a UES program. Um, met Divi, uh, started looking into Paladin. I like the solution of having a drone that you can send out and you don't have to have range anxiety. I guess that's what I call it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, so in, at least in this setting here where, you know, we have, uh, we're not, it's not flat. We have tall buildings. Um, uh, you know, our, uh, the city is pretty, pretty, pretty large. So we needed a, a solution that we can send out further than what we're used to with, you know, um, DJI products or Autel. We just needed that, that longer range so we can successfully operate a DFR program. Um, and, um, just like it stands for DFR drone as a first responder, a 911 call comes in, um, and um, the teleoperator will send out, would enter the address of the, the emergency call, basically hit a button, and the, and the drone's going to autonomously flight to that to that uh, to that location, and provide the much needed uh, situational awareness that that we we require so we can assess the scene, um, and um, and give it back to command staff or even the responding officers that are going to that location. That sounds awesome. Can before we really get into uh, um, this conversation, can you give us a little bit of background about what it took to get a drone as a first responder program launched and organized? It was as far as the the to get the BVLOS. It was um, it was 
not as hard as I thought. Um, I had been hearing all these horror stories about it. It was a long process. Initially, when we started our program, when we got our JCOA, um, back then it took uh, anywhere between four to six months just for the jurisdictional. And I was expecting that, you know, this was going to take a lot longer. Divi kept telling me it was going to be quicker. I didn't believe him. But, um, but yeah, it was it was fairly quick. Um, and uh, as long as, you know, once we satisfied everything that the FAA required and we got the approvals, and uh, then it was just a matter of picking a launch site that we're comfortable with. And um, and here we are. I'm actually at the launch site as, uh, as we're doing this interview. So what is what is the big advantage to you uh, for this DFR program? You know, we've seen drones being used as a as a tool when you get on scene and you 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 take off and then you're kind of it's not drawn as it's drawn as a second responder, right? As opposed to drawn as first responder. What what's the big advantage to you uh, doing this as DFR? Right. So what you just described now, Greg, that like that's. Uh that's more of like uh, using the drone as um, as a reactive tool, right? Um, yeah. The officer arrives on the scene. You know, it can be a fleeing suspect, a missing person, and the drone is launched. DFR is almost like a um, using it proactively, where you know the call comes in. The response time is a lot shorter than what takes um, a police car to get to the scene. Um, and we've even here we've we've realized that fairly quick, where you know we we have a lot of we have a lot of patrol cars. Um, working during a shift but with the calls that we send our dfr with the drone to the drone always gets there quicker so it can be to just to assess the scene it's just it's getting there a lot quicker so you have eyes on the scene before a radio car gets there or a patrol car and uh it's just a response time i think the overall um the the biggest benefit of a dfr program is the response time how much faster is it than what you would traditionally be able to do when you send out an officer with a uh, with a car? So every, every location is going to be different. Um, what the test that we've done here at at, at this location is within thirty, uh, with I th uh, pretty much under ninety seconds, we can have the the drone at 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 that location. Obviously, if it's going to be a uh, a call that's not that far, we can be there within twenty to thirty seconds. But we've pretty much the 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 perimeter and we can get to the f f the farthest point within 90 seconds and uh, it all depends if you know a call comes in and uh, and a patrol car happens to be a block or two away it's going to be you know it's going to be a quick response time um yeah. so each each call is going to be it's going to be different so it's kind of hard to track that 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 specific um you know response time because each like i said each call is going to be different but from what we've seen we can be anywhere between 30 to 90 seconds, um, you know, within the city. And while the drone is flying to that location, police officers are still going there as well with their vehicles, right? It's not one or the other. It's both are happening at the same time. Correct. Both are happening at the same time. Yeah. Okay. What does it look like from your side, as far as information uh, gathering, what what are you looking at? Can you ask the drone to get closer to get a different angle? What, how how does that work from a from a physical standpoint? So once the location's entered into to uh, watchtower, um, the drone is gonna, it gets dispatched there, and when it when as soon as it arrives, it starts doing an orbit around the location, right? Um, and then once you're, once you, once you're happy with the angle that you're looking at and it, you got the scene covered, you just as easy as hitting stop on, on the watchtower, the drone stops, and then you can manipulate the camera, zoom in, zoom out, and you can cover all the angles. Um, I think 
the first time I saw it, I was I was amazed by it because you know you you it's it's I've never it's like you've never seen something like this before, right? You yeah. you're as an officer, you're you're used to like just hearing the the communication coming over the radio, you know, and you you know, and it's the caller that's calling it in. And sometimes the callers don't give out the best information or they don't paint the correct picture. So now you're getting there and you're seeing this live and you're not only just re- relying on what dispatch is telling you or what you're hearing on the radio, you're actually seeing it. Um, I think it's a game changer. Um, as far as public safety, this technology is it's a game changer. Hopefully everybody you know, realizes that and starts catching on to it because it's, you know, it's the response time, the situational awareness, it's, you know, everything comes into factor. Yeah. And uh, kind of a follow-up for Divi from a software perspective uh, and a, a UI user interface perspective, uh, how much time do you guys spend with the user uh, maybe on the field as they're using it to make tweaks so that the the, the software is as easy as possible? Because I'm guessing, Lewis, on your side as well, you, you get a lot of other things going on at the same time. You may be driving, you may be doing all these things. So Divi, is, is that something you guys take really into account? So in terms of building a product that works I'm not a first responder. In order to build something, I have to know what is going on. I have to know what our users are saying. It's the only way we can make something better. So when we launch into a new city, I try to be there for for one to two weeks because there are always things to iron out. There are always feature requests. One of the biggest changes we've recently made to our platform is how we control the gimbal. Before we had fairly simple controls where you would hit arrows on the screen and that would move the camera around as they needed to zoom in or zoom out or or move it down once we got to the scene. And now we've adapted that to start looking into clicking and dragging, having a lot more precise control of the gimbal itself. And these are all changes we have to make because we're not the end user. The firefighters, police officers, yeah, all right, Lewis. <laughs> the first responders are the users, and that's the only way we build a product that actually works and is useful to them. So for me and for Paladin as a whole, that's the number one priority. How do we actually build a great product? How do we keep changing the user interface? And all that, everything that Paladin is yeah. today has been built off of back from our first responders. So if you fly drones, for commercial reasons, which includes flying a drone as a first uh, responder, you have to, of course, uh, take into account all the different rules and regulations from the FEA. And one of them is uh, you're not able to fly beyond visual line of sight. Can we talk about how important being able to fly beyond visual line of sight is and what you guys have done in order to, to be able to achieve that? Yeah, I'll get right into it. Um, we have been adamant on building a system that is safe in order to fly over all different areas without beyond visual line of sight, meaning the ability to send a drone farther than the operator can see. When you're talking about a city which has a large area, 911 calls are completely random. If the drone can't go that far, it drastically decreases the effectiveness of that drone. Not to mention when you're in tall well, in areas with, with lots of LTE connections, lots of tall buildings, all of these um, different radio waves interfering, you'll most likely lose signal with that drone anyways, even if you had the ability to go beyond visual line of sight. 
when we get beyond visual line of sight, and we've been fortunate enough to now do it repeatedly, now when a 911 call comes in, we can legally cover the entire, if not the majority, if not the entirety of a city. A drone can take off, go exactly where it needs to go. And this is all through building up safety cases with the FAA by proving that the system works. And part of that really is our LTE technology that's built right into Nighthawk. When we fly drones further away beyond visual line of sight, we do not lose signal. We don't because it's bouncing off of several different cell towers. There are multiple layers of redundancy. And by working closely with departments and getting other BVLOS waivers approved, we are seeing what the FAA wants in terms of safety cases. And these are all things that we integrate into the department. We train them on these are what, what we have seen. This is how we need to adopt it for this specific department. And that leads us to, I think, one of the most exciting developments for us at, at Paladin. We have, through um, Elizabeth, New Jersey, gotten the first ever uh, beyond visual line of sight waiver in Class Bravo airspace. For those unfamiliar, um, Class Bravo is the airspace around most major airports. And this is where there are lots of flights going in and out. There are people in those planes. If anything happens to a drone in these airspaces, it could, it could cause catastrophic loss of life. And to be able to fly in these areas to be trusted in by you know by our cities that we're working with um, and by building technology that actually works, this is something that we're super super excited to get and to keep operations safe as we operate in these areas. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, and for for the people listening or watching to the show, uh, Elizabeth in New Jersey is pretty much across the river from Manhattan, and on the other side of Elizabeth, you have uh, Newark International Airport, which is one of the busiest airports here uh, around New York City. Uh, Louis, um, for you as a drone operator, how important is uh, beyond visual line of sight from your perspective? I, I think it's extremely important because you you can't. You can't operate a successful DFR program unless you have that waiver. Um, and hopefully, you know, one day we'll get past, you know, the FAA will get rid of the regulations for visual observers. And, you know, it can truly be a beyond visual line of sight. Right. Um, because up until now, you still you still require the visual observer, you know, either at the at the launch location or throughout, you know, throughout the city. But uh, but, yeah, it's extreme. It's extremely important. I, I think until all those safety features get worked out and you know, and the programs start justifying themselves, I think, uh, you know, and hopefully in the future, the FAA will see that and, uh, and, you know, there'll be less restrictions on these, uh, on these type of programs. And, and I have a question for the both of you. Uh, how do you get the FAA comfortable with the detect and avoid technology, especially when you fly in the class B airspace? Because I'm, I'm going to guess that this is the, the biggest thing the FAA is going to bulk at is how you're going to avoid an aircraft in the airspace or, or, or another drone in the airspace? There are a lot of detect and avoid technologies that are just getting started. And we're excited to see how the FAA approves or, or denies their use cases. 
for Paladin specifically, our detect and avoid uh, that allows us to get beyond visual line of sight is largely based on visual observers and our LTE technology. The ability to communicate with the drone as other aircraft are coming in, as well as never losing connection with the drone itself. Our goal, as, as Lewis alluded to, is to find safety cases where we can remove that visual observer in, entirely and hopefully do it in a very cost-effective manner for these cities. The uh, majority of cities don't, don't have budgets. They're, they're, very, under, uh, they're very understaffed. They're, they need resources and they're not in a position to be spending uh, millions of dollars on technology like this. And it's on us as the industry, um, as, as a company, and as individuals to find a way to make it happen, because oh, if we yeah. don't, then who will? Yeah. Can, can you talk us through the the waiver process? Like what was required to, to be able to get a BVLOS uh, waiver from the FAA? Yeah, I can briefly outline that when Paladin goes to a city, the very first thing we do is understand how DFR, assuming it gets approved, would be useful for that city. What are the different types of emergencies we're sending this on? It needs to be very directed. It needs to be very specific. And we need to be very open about how this program is being used. Once we start asking those questions to the decision makers, whether they're the chiefs, whether they're the city council, whether we have a town hall, all of those questions help us inform, help inform us about what is this use case? What are the different um, areas we're going to be flying in? What are the different obstacles we need to keep an eye out for? All of that information then essentially gets distilled down to a pretty large document called our CONOPS. And that is what we eventually submit to the FAA. And that is a mix of our understanding of the city, our understanding of the airspace, our understanding of our own experience with safety features that the FAA wants and implementing that with the technology that we have created to notify others, to have visual observers be involved with the operation. We submit that and it's not quite to a point where it's, you know, you fill out a form online and you can get these waivers. It's, it's very specific because each airspace is different, but we're here to take on, take that on. And from then on, if, if, things look good. We have a large meeting with the FAA and they point out all the holes in what we have put out. And we keep going through it. And eventually through back and forth, if the FAA is comfortable with our safety decisions, then it's um, hopefully we get things approved. And that's what happened with Class Bravo, with our Class Bravo waiver. So the uh, quick follow-up on that, the FA had what's called, or still has, the, the tactical beyond visual line of sight waiver available to uh, to public safety. Uh, did you guys build on top of that and use some of, of what the FA allowed to do this in order to build your case? No, so the tactical beyond visual, the TBVLOS, um, as it's often called, is pretty separate from the waivers that we are getting. That waiver is phenomenal for manual flight cases when you are arriving on scene um, with a unit and you need to get around a building and you no longer have line of sight with that drone. But it is fairly limited in that operation. It's great for what it is, which is manual flight, be able to legally go around these obstacles. For BVLOS, 
that we get, this is a like three mile radius that we are getting for from our launch site, meaning we can take off and up to three nautical miles go to these areas. And that's significantly different and based off of very different framework than TBVLOS. And we're very excited yep. that TBVLOS is a thing because that's, I think, something that's a more repeatable process for departments now. And as they're looking yep. to increase their drone operations, every single waiver, every single use case, every single flight that they do is is a win for the entire industry. And and uh, another follow-up on that, the uh, the Drone Advisory Committee report that came out a couple of months ago uh, had recommendation to start dividing beyond visual line of sight flights into two different categories, uh, what they call EV loss, I think it was, kind of a, a local beyond visual line of sight as opposed to a, a much longer beyond visual line of sight. Do, do you see a need for the FA to relax the rules for what you would consider, well, I would consider what you guys do in this case as a local beyond visual line of sight, three miles as opposed to 60 miles, 100 miles away, uh, you know, do you see a need for that distinction? I think they're pretty different use cases because when you're talking about going 60 miles away, um, that's, that's a lot, <laughs> right? That's, that's a lot of airspace and it's difficult to maintain safety in those. Now for our specific use case, for first responders in cities, infrastructures exist to allow like, you know, local beyond visual line of sight. I, I, I'm not sure what the exact terminology is, but for our purposes, whatever it takes to get a safe operation up and running, we are, we are full speed ahead on that. So as the FAA keeps, you know, uh, seeing what they want to do, we're here to listen to them. We're here to work with them and so far, I, I think things are moving in the exact right direction that we want because separation or no separation, the truth of the matter is BVLOS is here. Um, yep. DFR is here. It's just yep. getting started. And we definitely see change. We definitely expect to see changes in how that will actually be implemented. It's our job to be right uh, at the head of that and make sure that we're making conscious decisions to advance the industry. Now, maybe this question is for, for Lewis. Um, with a BVLOS waiver, uh, a vi the role of a visual observer is still uh, very important, of course. Um, does that person, like, is there just one or do you need multiple people that observe? Uh, and also, do they observe just the drone or do they observe the airspace? How does that work? So we're operating with a network of visual observers um, and not only is it for airspace, and but it's also for the drone itself. So we're it's a network of visual observers, not only at the launch location, but throughout the city. And do you have, does the FAA require you to keep uh, a set of eyes on the drone at all times, or do you need to just monitor the airspace, make sure there are no other manned aircrafts in the vicinity? We have to monitor the you drone, You have to yes. see the drone, yeah, okay. Lewis, quick correction: the the waiver itself is is for the airspace. We have to have okay. we have to constantly, so we have to be constantly monitoring the airspace, which is why the we airspace, use a yeah. network so that we're able to identify the pilot of the pilot knows where the drone is and the visual observers all know where the drone is. So when something comes in, it's about monitoring the airspace specifically. Okay. So. 
We we talked to um, we talked to a drone testing site in um, in North Dakota a couple weeks months ago now, and they were developing a, a network of structure that would help with beyond visual line of sight. And here we're talking about extended beyond visual line of sight. They they want to do inspections that go pretty long ways, uh, and 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 not have to use LTE in this case to keep the the drone in control. Um, is LTE critical to to what? to, to uh, DFR in your case? Absolutely. Um, when we started with Paladin, when we, within the first two weeks, realized that you can't do it without LTE. You, you really can't, at least not for our specific use case of being in 911 response. The minute you send a drone a mile, mile and a half, max and that's if you have line of sight you're on top of a building which most cities can't do like they don't have the manpower or the infrastructure to support that um you lose signal there are great technologies out there like ocusync is industry leading it is phenomenal in what it can do um but what it can do is mainly for manual flight and when you start going further away there is not an easy way to solve that problem of losing that connection and LTE is one of the best ways to solve that challenge. Yep. So with the BVLOS waiver and uh, using drones to respond to 911 calls, I mean, we know that, of course, 911 calls, they happen at any given moment. So we can't really predict the weather or uh, a lot of other things, uh, the timing of those calls. are you guys allowed and able to fly drones when it rains, when there's fog, when it's in the middle of the night, when there is a parade happening uh, in a, in a neighborhood? Like, what are the, some of the other uh, restrictions or, or considerations that you have to take into account when uh, when responding to these nine one one calls? One of For the biggest one of you guys. considerations <laughs> is weather. Yeah, or Lewis, you want to take this? Or you want me? I'm I'm fine either way. I was going to say the only consideration is just it's the weather. Yep. that's the only. That's the, that's the biggest one's going to be the weather, um, the winds, um, rain. And, uh, yeah, I think, I think the weather is the biggest one. Who makes that determination? Is it the pilot in command who decides whether you can fly the drone, uh, or is that decision made elsewhere? Well, it's, the, it's, it's ultimately going to be the, the pilot in command that's going to make the decision, but you know, you're going to know what, uh, you know, what, what, at what wind you can fly and you know, um, how many inches of rain per hour you 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 know the the equipment can uh, you know can operate in? Uh, so it's going to be the pilot in command that's going to make that decision. And an- another question for you, Lewis, is have how has this been received from a from a public standpoint? Uh, from a, we've we've talked to other people, and and privacy sometimes is a bit of an issue. Have you seen any anything from the from the community as far as privacy problems? There hasn't been anything yet, um, and and I'm sure Davey's going to talk about this. But once once the drone gets dispatched, uh, the camera's on the horizon, so it's not aimed down. It um it only starts aiming to the location once it starts arriving on scene. Um, you know, I can give you a, a really quick example. In the first few days, there was a call. Um, the drone got there, um, and then followed by the the patrol car that responded. And once the officers got there, the caller um, asked them, "Hey, was was that was that a police drone that that was here?" And they said, "Yes, that's uh, you know that was that's part of our drone as a first responder program." And the caller was amazed. They were like, "They said that a few seconds after they hung up the phone with nine one one, the drone was over their property." 
So they're 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 extremely extremely happy with the response time, and they 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 had nothing but good things to say about are, it. Are there any success stories that you can share about how the drones uh, were able to either identify somebody or prevent something or save a life? Or are there any recent success stories that you can share? Well, we've it's only been I think we're on the third week, um, and um, within the first few days, the, there was a, an arrest that was. Um, you know, resulted from uh, a DFR flight. All right. And how, how many flights have you guys been able to perform in, in that period of, let's say, the three weeks that you uh, mentioned? So it's we're we're generating um, multiple flights per shift. Um, and um, and it's constantly, um, you know, some days obviously are more than others, but it's been it's been a steady flow. Now, from the uh, Chula Vista uh, story, we know that um, all the drone flights that are done by the police department there, uh, they have a database online where all of those drone flights are basically made public. So uh, if I live there and I see a drone flying over uh, overhead, I can go online, I can check it out and see, oh, this is this mission, the drone went there, blah, blah, blah. Uh, is that something that you guys do as well? Do you do you make that publicly available, the, the drone flight information? We're not at that point yet, but the, the the data is getting stored. We do have all the information for each flight. Um, you know, hopefully, you know, down the line, Chula Vista has been doing it for a lot longer than than anybody else has. So they've been able to work out all those um, all those issues. And um, so, yeah, we're you know we're, we we're all learning from them from what they've done. And um, and eventually, I think that's you know transparency should be you know also something you know with with any DFR program. And um, you know, we'll we'll get there. What's the what uh, what's on your want list? Oh, go ahead, Divi. No, I was just going to add real quick that uh, it's the only way forward for DFR is through transparency, and all of the flights were required by law to be submitting them to the FAA. Um, and I, I believe any any video that's recorded is is under public information through. Um, you know, through the Freedom of Information Act. Yeah. And we want to make sure we're following that to a T. I, I don't want drones following me around in, in my city, you know, just not knowing exactly what it is that we're doing. And which is why every single time we fly, we're at least 200 feet above the ground, cameras pointing at the horizon. If anything is recorded, that is stored in a database that's available through um, Freedom of Information Act. And that's all available to the public, and we're hoping to start making interfaces to make that and make that information just as as public as possible. It's the only way that this is going to work. Yeah, yep, I agree. Uh, Lewis, if you had a, uh, a list of things that you would want to see for future future iterations of the program, what would it be? What's missing at the moment that would make your life even easier? And Divi is writing down everything. <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> is this where I give out all my all my free ideas? Um, um, yes. <laughs> I got my notebook. Wait, but there's 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 a, there's going to be a lot of competitors watching this. So, um, listen, I, I think, and I and I've I've said this across the board, not only to Divi, I've said this to everybody. Um, you know, I think the biggest limitation to DFR right now is range. And I think you, you can't operate a, a DFR program with, with anything but an LTE drone. I think that's, that's the future. Um, I think DFR is here to stay. And I just think that 
the um, the hardware needs to catch up with where the software is now. Um, you know, there's there's great software platforms out there for DFR. The equipment just isn't there yet as far as the range. We all know that DJI, you know, DM300, DM30, Altel has, you know, the Evo. Um, they uh, they have the Dragonfish. So there is good equipment out there. The problem is the range. How do we, how can we, you know, be in, uh, you know, the, tel- the, the pilot in command for a DFR program, be at a location and know that they're going to hit go or enter the address and know that the, the drone's going to make it two miles, three miles without having somebody, you know, on the roof with the controller, aiming the controller at the drone so you don't lose communication. So I think, yeah, the only suggestion this is to everybody is, would be, you know, LTE. Yeah. yeah, so you're talking about transmission. Is is battery a, an issue as well at this stage or really is the transmitter the the the, the missing link or the, the low link? I, th- I think everybody would like to have a, a drone that flies, you know, does what the Dragonfish does, right? You know, uh, a two-hour flight and... So, you know, the Nighthawk has a 55-minute flight time. And from, you know, what I've experienced so far, uh, we've we've been a- been able to handle multiple calls on one flight. So I think that I think that sweet spot in battery life, I think it's going to be within that hour mark. Um, because, you know, a, a call happens, a, the drone comes back in, you can swap the batteries out. But in case, you know, you, you're, you know, you're a busy enough city where you need to handle multiple calls per flight, um, I think that hour mark. So I think, yeah, like, like, like you said, Greg, I think LTE is, you know, the first thing that needs to be worked out. And then obviously battery technology, um, and you know, longer, longer flight times will, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't hurt the program. Yeah. Is, uh, and that's a follow up maybe for the both of you is a fixed wing, a better platform than a, than a quadcopter or octo, uh, Copter or or is what you have now perfect for what you need to do? And maybe Divi has a different answer. I I think for for our situation here, I think the the, the quadcopter right now, I think it's the best solution. Um, you know, I think obviously each city is going to have a different application. If you're covering longer longer areas, uh, something like uh, you know something like a dragonfish would make sense um, because of you know the longer flight time and um, and the range, you know, and eventually getting that range on on that equipment, I think, um, you know, a platform like that would make more sense. But for our application here, I think a quadcopter is is fine, and uh, and we've we're happy with the results so far. Just adding on to that, you had a bit of delay, um, yeah. yeah, adding on to that, quadcopters, I like, are the industry standard right now. We are excited to see what other platforms, other companies are releasing, because there is what we've realized is there's really no one size fits all. Every single city is different. Their needs are different. And quadcopter fills most of them because you can, at least with, with Nighthawk, we're able to get um, a pretty decent flight time, which can cover a large portion of an area and have the maneuverability that comes with having a quadcopter design. But that doesn't mean that other other designs out there can't be better for specific use cases. If I was to create a system for, let's say, a, a wildfire in large areas, I would never recommend a quadcopter. I would recommend find a way to get a fixed wing because you need that flight time. You need some super directional antennas in those non, non-connected areas so that you never lose signal. So it really depends on the use case. But I think for cities, and the uh, cities that we're looking for, right, where um, 
urban, suburban areas, quadcopter seems to make the most sense so far. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? I mean, with a fixed wing, you get speed, you get range. Uh, with a quadcopter, you get the ability to to fix a perspective and just have a drone hover in one spot and just keep that same view. Um, we spoke about how range and transmission is important for for a dfr drone like what other things are crucial for a dfr drone apart from let's say battery life i mean are you guys looking for weather resistance or is it specific payloads that you that you would prefer uh, for a dfr drone and this can be either for Dizzy yeah. or or lewis i i listen i think what would be the perfect drone for a dfr program uh one that has a, a long flight time uh has a really good payload uh with uh you know, with a good zoom camera, thermal, and of course, weather resistant, you know, a, a one that can fly in rain, snow, sleet, um, really warm temperatures, really cold temperatures. I think if, you know, somebody does develop that drone, I think that, you know, obviously would be the best for, you know, the best for a uh, DFR application. I think one of the best platforms would be all weather system with a great gimbal, uh, ability to fly for a long time and have unlimited yeah. range. So if, if uh, anyone who's listening right now wanted to get started with a DFR program, what, what's the first step? What should they be looking into? What are some of the tips maybe that you want to give them? Uh, things that you wish you had known when you started, maybe for you, Lewis. Um, I, have, I have to be careful with this, with this answer so I don't offend anybody. Um, um, <laughs> I, I, I think as if someone's shopping around for a DFR program, I think obviously, you know, try give you know give everybody a shot you know see which one you feel more comfortable with um when with me i wanted to uh, all in one solution that's i think that's that's kind of the easiest way to explain it i you know i wanted to have the software have the hardware and have someone that can assist with the application process for the the bvlos um, cause a lot of times, even for, you know, non DFR stuff, you get, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of these dealers and retailers and, you know, they'll come in and they'll try to sell you the software, but then, you know, then they leave, you're on your own for the hardware. And then most importantly, you're on your own to deal with the FAA. So I think if that's, if that's the case, I think, you know, I, I would have given, I probably would have given up. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have tried to pursue it anymore, but I think, you know, I think that's important as, as, as a customer for anything, right. You want to go whatever the best product is out there and whatever, you know, the best solution, you know, all in one stop, right? Like you get yep. equipment, you get the, the, the software and you get the FAA assistance. So in the show we did last week, uh, we were talking about the same thing, DFR programs and the numbers that we were given is that about 5% of, I think it's like 20 or 30,000 uh, first responder agencies in the United States, that's only 5% uh, roughly currently has a drone program. Um, can you guys sh uh, perhaps shine some light on that? Like, why is that? Why is that percentage so low? Are first responders getting the value of a drone or is there still work to be done there uh, yet? Or uh, are there other challenges that uh, first responders are dealing with that kind of keep that uh, keeps that number uh, low? Yeah, I'll, I'll take this real quick, Lewis. Um, the biggest thing that we have seen is there's a lot of there's it takes momentum 
a lot of when you try to go to a when you try to start anything, it takes a lot of momentum. It takes a lot of work to get it off the ground. Whether you're starting a drone program, whether you're starting or that you have a program and you want to start DFR, and a lot of times it can feel that there is no easy access to the information that you need to make a successful program. Like if you're a small town and you're trying to start a drone program because you've heard stories of all these. You know, bigger departments using drones and having successes. You want to do it yourself, but then where do you where do you start?、Um, how do you get started? I, I think that friction there stops a lot of departments from trying. Now, what we have seen is、uh, more and more departments are at least allocating budgets for these drone programs themselves, which is a huge win for the industry. And what we're seeing is, if you're looking to get involved with drones, like forget even other companies that can help you. There's Facebook groups. There's、um, uh, like like LinkedIn groups. There's all sorts of、um, places where you can get involved, and they're just filled with other first responders who are making this successful. So I think in order to have this growth that everybody wants to see in this industry, it's finding ways to make it easy, and that's definitely something that we pride ourselves on doing. Is we want to be there for the entire. Duration of a DFR program of that entire drone program to begin with, because there are so many unknowns. It's difficult to figure out what drones you want. It's difficult to figure out what software you need, what training you need, what sort of maintenance that's going to require. Where are you going to get the budget for、right. it? Not to mention the entire FAA process.、Right. So, in doing this, working with small cities first, we really at Paladin figured out a lot of those things, and we're. Really excited that other departments、um, across the country are now trusting us to help them through the exact same thing. Because I think we're by being there to provide it all, we're we, we're pretty honest about what works and what doesn't work. One of the first things I'll ask a client is, "Hey, what are you actually going to use this for?" And we need to determine if Paladin is a good fit. Because if it's not, I'm happy to send you to to someone else who'd be better used for your specific need right now.、Um, but I think that's the only way to keep moving it forward. Are, are there other cities that you know of that people should be looking into、uh, if they're trying to do some research? We obviously know of Chula Vista. Anybody else out there that can that comes to mind? There are lots of departments that are starting DFR programs. Some cities that we have worked closely with are Memorial Villages in Houston,、um, very small、um, suburban area where they're currently conducting DFR operations every single day.、Um, Elizabeth in New Jersey is obviously one, and、uh, we have several others that we are just spinning up that I'm excited to share in the near future. Um, and if you look kind of across the country, Chula Vista has been really a, a beacon of success for the entire industry, and there's a lot that everybody can learn from them. And we are committed to making DFR happen for everybody, whether that's a big city, whether it's a small city,、oh. whether it's a medium-sized city. Right? What did I cover everything?、There? I think so. <laughs> All the different sizes. We want. <laughs> so I have a question, and I'd like to get an answer from from both of you because I think you have different perspectives,、uh, probably on this.、Uh, if we fast forward five years from now, where would you like uh, DFR uh, to be uh, specifically for for rele- what's relevant for you and your environment, but maybe even、uh, for the nation as a as a bigger? All right. So I in five years, I I I envision at least our program multiple launch locations. 
and hopefully by then, uh, you know, it'll be a true, you know, BVLOS um, where you don't need the visual observer. And uh, hopefully by then there's technology that can support that as far as, you know, monitoring the airspace. And um, and I hope more more departments and more cities pick up the technology. I think it's to me, I think as far as drones and public safety, I think DFR is the future. Um, I've been saying that for a while. People that know me are probably tired of me of hearing, hearing me say that. Um, but yeah, I think DFR is the How future. How about you, Where do you see the DFR program? Uh, where where would you like things to be five years from now? Five years from now, I would like um, the majority of cities across the country using DFR and saving lives through these programs. That's always been the goal since day one, and I think we can get there within these next five years. All right. All right. Well, uh, gentlemen, I think we're getting to the end of the show. We really appreciate uh, your time. It, time flies. I was just looking at the clock and we've been recording for almost an hour. And uh, we always appreciate your insight, uh, especially, uh, Louis, you being on the field and doing this on the on a daily basis. And, and Divi, you listening to people and creating cool technology behind it. So uh, we really appreciate your time. And let's, uh, let's meet again yeah. in five years. Actually, let's meet before that. But in five years and see if you guys were right about your predictions. Right. <laughs> we'll see. There you you heard go. it here first. <laughs> That's awesome. right. Well, for both of you, thank you for coming on the show. It's, it's right. really cool to talk to people who are actually in this business and have hands on experience. And uh, we do appreciate you guys uh, sharing your knowledge and your experience uh, with the uh, Drone as a First Responder program. Thank, definitely. Thank thanks you. for having us. It's always a pleasure. Awesome. Thank, thank you, you. Greg. Thank you. Hi.